Welcome to The Evidence-Based Therapist, a podcast where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find three therapists discussing cutting-edge research articles, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. This is um, a little bit of a special episode in that we're beginning something wonderful. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. A series. A series on intersubjectivity. Mm-hmm. Something that we talk a lot about um, on uh, some of our other podcasts, like Notice That. But it's also something that is so interwoven into the way that we see um, virtually every bit of human biology. And how we show up as humans today. So before we get into that, um, we're going to talk a little bit about what the season will look like and some of what just some basic ideas of intersubjectivity have been and just some of our own ideas on intersubjectivity and why we're going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And why it feels so important Exactly. Mm -hmm. We do have one article that we've already selected, which we will share with you. So those that wish to read along and and kind Mm -hmm. of start tearing, tearing it apart themselves... Um, they can, and so we'll get that information to you as well. Um, but this is going to be just a little intro yeah. into intersubjectivity and the uh, series that we're about to embark on. Mm-hmm. And before we get into the fun stuff, mm. well, I mean, this it's is all fun. fun. It's so, so fun. Yeah. Uh, before we get into all of that, though, we wanted to invite you guys um, to have a look at our website at beyondhealingcenter.com because we are launching our uh, books, our scheduling books for retreats with Beyond Healing Center. Yes. Um, so we've kind of slowed down a little bit in the last six months or so with retreats because... I don't think we've talked about what retreats are on this podcast. Oh, I know. I'm going to get into that. Okay, cool. Um, we had kind of slowed down because, whoa, we ran out of time and there was only three of us that could do them. But just recently, we have amassed a amazing group of therapists that are trained and ready to do retreats yep. through Beyond Healing Center. They're all on our staff. Yes, yes. Amazing. Supervised by us, working in close partnership with us, um, trained in our model, EMDR trained, et cetera, SIP trained. That's right. Um, so what that means is we do uh, three to five day intensive healing retreats. And you can come to Springfield and stay at one of our retreat centers. We have a couple of different options. We have a city option and a country option. That's right. <laughs> That's true, actually. That. Very yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. um, and the country option includes a amazing equestrian farm. Yep. Um, an oak grove that you can go walking in. Yep. We literally saw a wild coyote. We did. Like yeah. in a field, just <laughs> like majestically looking at Just us. being. I felt... I don't know. Yeah, you were somewhere else. I was somewhere it, else. It was, yeah. it was such special. a good moment. But and we're that only place is beautiful. Yeah, we're only fifteen is. minutes outside of Springfield. Yeah. Yes. It's crazy. Yes. Um, so yeah, conveniently located, but absolutely gorgeous. And we also have you know city options for people that uh, maybe don't like the country experience yeah. as much and prefer the downtown experience. So yeah. we you know have different options. But um, what's included in the retreat is every day three hours of intensive therapy with a primary therapist, and then on top of that, several adjunctive services such as trauma-informed massage therapy, um, yoga therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have lo- basically a menu of options to choose from, inc- including equestrian therapy, which is horse therapy. Yep. Um, 
and so many other things. We you know, provide every single meal for you. We take care of every need while you're here so that you can just relax into the healing experience of really having the opportunity to do some deep work that maybe is harder to do when you're at home living your normal, busy daily life. The other thing that uh, we've sort of discovered by doing this is that it's really a wonderful opportunity for therapists to have access to their own therapy. Yeah. Because sometimes finding a therapist to work with in our hometown can be a little tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is an opportunity to come and you know receive therapy from a team of people that is highly trained um, in doing this kind of work and really just have a wraparound experience of being 100% taken care of for the days that you're here. Um, we have lots of people that do multiple retreats because they find it so beneficial. Um, if you're at all curious about it, you can go to our website at beyondhealingcenter.com and look at the retreats tab. But also, uh, we do free consultations for people that are curious about the retreats and what that would entail. So you can always email us at therapy at beyondhealingcenter.com and uh, ask about details about the retreat and get on the phone with one of us uh, to talk through whether or not this would be a good option for you. Um, And we also try to make it as affordable as possible and find financing options for people uh, to make it accessible. So that's a long way of saying come hang out with us in Springfield and experience some deep healing Mm -hmm. uh, because it's really, really a profound experience and one of our favorite things that we do. And notably, Caleb. Yeah, I was just going to say. Has yeah. agreed to do retreats for us. And I'm so stoked. Yeah. Yeah. Very excited. Uh-huh. What uh-huh. do you just, after going through the training, what are you thinking about retreats? Like what excites you about it? Well, I said a line today as I was um, consulting with someone who wanted to come. Oh yeah. And as I was talking, I was just like, I think, I think it's hard for people to imagine really feeling what an anchored, anchored experience is of safety and connection feels Mm. like oh man yeah but when you come to these retreats and you your body is welcomed with maybe a therapeutic massage that is not Mm. like a let me just like crush your muscles no not at all it is like a a moment of like sacred like welcome right nervous system regulation yes yes Mm -hmm. let this be the beginning yeah Yeah. and then you engage in emdr you have all these adjunctive services and it is literally just like a week a weekend of subjectivity mm-hmm. oh, and man. that is like so be- i'm like beyond excited i'm beyond excited to do beyond healing retreats <laughs> i um, think maybe you figured out why we named it what we did yes yeah yeah it sounds so so cool and i'm so excited that's and so awesome yeah it, it is that amazing yeah. it is it's what i want from things. my individual therapy like working so hard in an hour two hours to right. like foster these experiences mm-hmm. and there's so often where I'm like, man, if I could like have a body worker right, right. here, who right. I could just, just pull in, yeah. Yeah. let's integrate this right now. And that's literally what a retreat is. Yeah. Yeah. And How that special. is beautiful. That's mm-hmm. amazing. Oh man. What you can get done in 15 hours of therapy spread across five days is profound. <laughs> life changing. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah life really changing is, is yeah. not a, an overstatement at all. So long way of saying Come and hang out with us in Springfield. We would yeah. love to see you and more than that, take care of you for yes. three to five days. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of welcome you into our little community and mm. uh, all the healing that we like to offer. Yes. So, all right. Well, that said, you guys ready to dive yeah. into a pretty profound conversation that An is amazing. totally relevant to how we do retreats? Yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and really also, is. one thing that I was thinking as you're talking is connecting this back to why why do we decide to jump into intersubjectivity? 
when we are coming off of shame. Mm. Yeah. And looking at the research that was both talking about the tertiary understanding of shame, which is mm. more cognitive. I am bad. It's a, yeah. it's kind of belief driven. It's that prefrontal cortex, yeah. neocortex yeah. kind of thought thinking. But then process. there's the, there's the structural dissociative shame, yeah. which is in the primary secondary yeah. elements of Deeper your neurobiology. And then, I mean, anytime we talked about shame, we were talking about across time in connection with people. Yes. And that is exactly how intersubjectivity both works yeah, and begins and is formed yeah. and is inhabited. Yes. And so connecting off of those articles, yeah. we were just like, well, I think we have to talk about intersubjectivity. Yeah. And as we were looking at it, I remember even just today, Caleb, like we were looking at this article um, and saying, you know, this takes the episode we did on bound to feel bad about oneself to an entirely different mm. level yeah. when you start looking at the neurobiology of intersubjectivity mm -hmm. because it's, it shows how shame um, is affecting the primary conduit of brain development. Mm -hmm. It is changing that yeah. to reciprocally install the narrative that is, I am bad, I am unlovable, I'm worthless because of the lack of disconfirming information from the primary attachment figures. Yeah. A lack of synchronizing interbrain connections. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even like to go back to the article we did last time, mm -hmm. um, when it was talking about misattribution of information and how intersubjectively the lack of synchronization with an other yeah. can lead to you misattributing information later on in life. Right. Because your, the structure of your brain is set up to disintegrate cues not look at certain information because that was yes. not the ordered. Yeah. The organizing principles of your self schema, the way you understand yourself and other are generating these negative, uh, globally negative as in the whole self, uh, beliefs that no, I am bad. This is my fault. Mm -hmm. Other people don't want me because of something deficient in me. And if something negative comes up in the environment, maybe I believe for the, like in, immediately that it came from within me instead. Right. That's my fault. Yeah. Or the offspring of that, which is, it's your fault. Exactly. Which is like where anger is the offspring of Blame. Shame. Yeah. Should we just jump into an, a definition of intersubjectivity? I think yeah. there's so many and I can't wait because that's why we decided <laughs> to do this, uh, this episode, the, an introduction, because there's just a world, an intersubjective world yeah. that we're diving into, yeah. which is yeah. multi-layered in yeah. meaning. <laughs> yeah. But So where should we begin? Maybe, well, I don't know. Well, you made a comment earlier, Bridger, about should we tell them that it comes from philosophy? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Should we? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So I think intersubjectivity, and I think one of the pieces that we use in our training to describe this is coming to mind of like the it-I uh, distinction. Martin Buber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah. with just looking at an object and a subject, just so we know bare ingredients, basic right. ingredients. What are we talking about here? Um, one of the, my favorite ones that I use all the time in the trainings and with clients as well is the concept of a book. Right. A book can be very detailed. It can have a lot of thought put into it. It can be very meaningful, but in and of itself, without a subject, an object just sits. Yeah. It exists on a shelf. It can sit next to another book with a totally different story and plot line in it, but they don't interact. 
they just sit there cover to cover mm-hmm. on the shelf. Mm-hmm. But if the author of those two books or one author for each book came and started talking subject to subject, they would then be given access to a world of experience that they could reflect on even in reference to the object that they created. So yeah, I created this object out of my subjectivity and here's where I was at with it. This is what I was thinking. These are some of the ideas that I was really putting into the book and the other subjective author can say, that's really interesting. This is what I was putting into my object that I created and they can now talk about the object. They can also talk about their subjective feelings of what was that process like for you? Oh man, I remember it was this and this and this. And you know, I actually remember I read your book, your object of production and here's some of the things i was thinking mm-hmm. and feeling as i was taking that in mm-hmm. the reaction that it produced in exactly me. yeah so that to me gets at just some of the fundamental um differences between objectivity and subjectivity mm-hmm. when we're talking about it in very simple terms there are you know that if that's the smallest scalable version of intersubjectivity it goes all the way up as well into getting into our different personalities yeah. ways that we cloak ourselves in objectivity no, I'm not Bridger. I'm therapist. Mm-hmm. I'm researcher. Letter. I'm academic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And everybody has their favorite mm-hmm. objects that they play sometimes. Mm-hmm. But in that, we are feeling that our subjectivity needs to be sort of um, put into an object to serve a purpose. Maybe it's to hide ourselves. Maybe it's to find safety somewhere. Maybe it's just to get approval or validation or to be out of the line of fire. For some reason, we've chosen that in this moment, objectivity is the way that we'd like to show up mm-hmm. instead of my true, dynamic, complex self, mm-hmm. my subject. So those ideas are at the base of where subjectivity and intersubjectivity came from um, in Herschel uh, almost 100 years ago. And that is where all of this language got started, intersubjectivity. Mm-hmm. Um from there, it's been picked up by a ton of different dif- disciplines, but for our purposes, most notably, psychoanalysis. Right. Well, and I, I just want to stop there and say, like, adding the inter to the subject is speaking about the relationship between the two subjects when they come together. Yeah. Husserl uses the language of when two subjectivities interface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So the interfacing of two subjects yeah. creates intersubjectivity. That's right. Mm-hmm. Which is... Uh, and we'll talk about this, but the psychoanalytic tradition calls that the third. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Which is where it's not totally you and it's not totally right. them. We create a totally We unique, create a yeah. whole new we. thing, which yeah. is the relationship between us. Yes. Um, yeah. I even think of like in theological terms, yeah. Hebrews, the Hebrew language has zimzum. Zimzum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's which right. Which is the space between. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And I think just kind of as a lived example that every human being has likely experienced to some degree or another is the feeling of when you know as an adult you go home to your family of origin for i don't know some kind of family gathering christmas or whatever and something happens when you cross the threshold. Very I love this. Person. I love this like example. <laughs> you know, this yeah, is... no. I mean, it just, it's like you can feel it happen in your body because it literally is happening in your body. Like your whole nervous it's system is shifting. Neurophysiological. Yes, into yeah. a strategy that you honed as a child to survive your family of origin or thrive in oh. your family of origin. You know, whatever version of it it was for you. Honed is such a great word. To honed. Use. No, that's. I. I. To me, that's like exactly what happens in our nervous system is these you know, pathways of affective activation 
are honed and created and all yeah. wired together. And it's almost like, you know, not almost, it is correct to say that our environment stimulates those different affective patterns and says, oh, you're home with your family of origin here. Let me turn on this role that you always play. This is the object of you're, role you You're the play. baby of the family? Okay, go time, right? Yep. And it, that role just flips on. And next thing you know, I had a really interesting experience this weekend of being with my partner mm. with a bunch of his childhood friends. <laughs> Different person. Oh, it was fascinating. And to watch the friends interact with him as the the human that he normally is in that context. With them. And then for them to try to compute the him that he is with me, which is totally different, it was just a super interesting intersubjective reality that we were all in together. Yeah. <laughs> and it was lovely. Like, there was really yeah. nothing negative about it. It was all of the roles that were being played were wonderful. And there was yeah. actually a lot of allowance for true human intersubjectivity. Um, That's beautiful. But I, to me, it was just like another one of those classic examples of contextually our body shift gears and recognizes the intersubjective space that we're currently in. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, naturally falls into those patterns and says, okay, I know how to be in this space. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the fluidity of the self states. Like, yeah. like intersubjectively, I, I will be different here than I will be even yeah. in a therapy session. Yeah. Like I'm going and it's not only like just me that changes, but also like the the like actual people that are around me that my nervous system is neuroceptively doing a lot of mm -hmm. data gathering Absolutely. and forming totally implicitly I, like i am unconscious of that right but that's going to inform both how i am in the space and how they yeah. are to me in the mm -hmm. space and then how we are in the space that we created which is the third right yes. so there's a and when i try to teach this to clients and and to even to therapists excuse me, to therapists, there's this confusion with the language and it's kind of off-putting. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate. And so I just want to invite the listener, like, just stick with it because this is based in human development from infancy, from, from the moment of response to stimuli. Mm -hmm. This concept is what we've called that process. Well, and I think that's a good point, Bridger, of why, why the term? Right. Yeah. Like, why do we go ahead and use the term intersubjectivity and intersubjective space rather than just saying relationship yeah. or yeah. That's what I the way, important. you know, the ways that humans interact? Like, why do we Why do you keep talking like that? Yeah. Why do we select these labels and identifiers so specifically? And, you yeah. know, here at BHC, we get really committed to certain language. Oh, man. And there, it's important to us um words are a big deal to us huge because <laughs> yeah. that's basically our yeah. whole life is either talking them writing them or listening to them so we choose them very carefully so i'm curious what's your answer to that guys why why are we so committed to this word and this phrase why not just say relationship my mind goes to George Kelly's oh. idea of constellatory constructs oh, nice. and well, how you're going to have to say a whole lot more about that. So yeah, his <laughs> idea is that like, and, and he's before like a lot of modern neuroscience, but he is observing in his clinical practice that people, the way people talk about their lives is they use these words that, yeah. that if you were to ask more, you would get a lot of what they're not saying and mm -hmm. what they are saying. And then you realize that these words mean like, a million things it's it's yeah. a constellation almost yes. like literal galaxy when I use of one meaning. word it yeah. is attached to 
the meaning that has found in the yeah. constellation. Yeah, and what Contextually he Contextually and individually, which yeah. means exactly. that the reaction that it produces in the individual hearing it is way too variable. Yeah. yeah, and George Kelly talks about like in personality, one of the things that can really trip people up is when they use a constellatory construct um, chaotically. Yes, mm. when it or does flippantly. It, they, they're not even aware of what they don't mean and they do mean. Yes. And so yeah. intersubjectivity has a has a boundary to mm-hmm. it and a, a specificity. specificity. <laughs> oh, we've been hanging out too much. No, I knew clearly. Um, well, not too much, but no. uh, yeah, a specificity thing. to it that is going to ignite very specific mm-hmm. further constructs. Yes. Well, and, and when even, we go ahead. Well, I was going to say when we say relationality or mm-hmm. relationship, I mean to to me that feels like it's. I don't know what that's going to provoke in you. Yeah. And and also like that doesn't connote like that we create something different. A third. That's right. The relationship to I, books have a relationship. I, was just I have say, a relationship to objects. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This is different. Yes. Yeah. And Things relationships can, can have objects or objects can have relationships with other objects. Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. They, they Interobjects. And they need to. A car, yeah. you better hope that all of those individual objects that are operating that vehicle have a relationship. Have a relationship. Because yeah. if yeah. they don't, you're not gonna go anywhere. Yeah. A plant and its pot have a very important relationship, right. but they're still objects. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So to me, why I use that language, I love that that's how you started that, Caleb, of going into what your first association was and the importance that you found in it. For me... It's very intersubjective. I'm just yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> for me, it goes to... It is so vital for me in my being to speak in a way that can be understood. And so the language really matters to me. And the specificity of the construct that I'm evoking or connoting is all the more important. And so I want to make sure that that language is is clear, is consistent, and also able to be nuanced in a way that can be individually hmm. subjectified. Yes. Where people can say like, oh yeah, I, I totally know that for me. Mm-hmm. So for me, the intersubjective space and just the all of the language of intersubjectivity uh, it's the language that was put to the development of human consciousness in relationship. And that to me is why I find it so unwaveringly relevant mm-hmm. yeah. in our in our usage as a practice of psychotherapists, but also as embodied humans that are seeking to to invite the subjectivity and the embodiment of mm-hmm. other humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people have heard us talk about other concepts that are similar to intersubjectivity, yes. which is like interdependence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interpersonal. Um, interpersonal. Like and if the, you're starting I mean, to kind of piece these together, you yeah. can get this nice flow of conversation. Yeah. And and really, again, you you kind of have a better idea of what you're talking about mm-hmm. yeah. because these words are so finely tuned. Right. And some of those concepts I think therapists are more used to discussing now, we've run into a few recently that have actually had graduate programs where intersubjective, intersubjectivity was, at the base? was, yeah, it was the, one of the foundational principles of their graduate program. Yeah, which, Caleb, yeah that C- face. Caleb's making a surprise face right now. Yeah. But apparently that exists, which yep. is yeah, amazing. Sign uh, yeah, sign us up, exactly. Um, 
And so, you know, there are people talking about it, but by and large, it's a new concept to therapists. This isn't mm-hmm. something that we've been talking about. Yeah, which um, is strange to me because it's older than Freud. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it was in a, a, a different enough domain right. that it did not get the attention that it really deserved. Well, yeah. yeah. And I think one of the, okay, so I have two thoughts. Number one is, I think one of the reasons why it's experiencing a resurgence is because while philosophy discovered it and wrote about it first, What's happened is over time, neuroscience has come along and said, oh, that thing that philosophy was talking about is totally in line with the neurobiological sequencing and development of a human organism. Yes. So we should pay attention to that concept because it's really relevant to understanding how human beings are built, how they interact with each other, how we influence each other and how we heal, which yeah. is you know incredibly relevant to clinicians. All from a bottom up a embodied bottom up. perspective. And that, that's what I mean is that the neurosequential development of the human organism is based on intersubjectivity. That's right. That's exactly it. And and so without an understanding of that, we have a hard time making sense of why does the human organism uh, focus on the things that it does? Why is it impacted so significantly by some experiences and not so much by others? Right. And intersubjectivity is a huge part of yeah. that answer. Because I've got the answer. Yeah. And not only is it the answer to the why we develop the way we do, but then the what do we do when That's development right. has been uh, problematic in some way That's or right. not gone in an ideal way. And as clinicians, that's like the most important thing to us. One of the reasons personally why I really like the concept of intersubjectivity besides the fact that, you know, the fact that it's consistent with neuroscience, which is important and neat, yeah, um, that's really relevant. But the other thing is that I think it highlights universality and the interconnectedness of our species. Yes. And this is true across cultures. Yes. This is true across. Yes, exactly. And and there is a incredible need currently as a species for us to move away from our devotion to individualism and move towards a deep understanding of our interconnectedness and the fact that no human organism is an island unto itself. Careful, and you're in America. So I know. In the I'm, side. I'm, well, I'm not from here, That's so right. I can say what I want. <laughs> I had to get That's it true. in. It always comes in. <laughs> it does. It's an important role that I play to be the alien and the foreigner. There so I just put on that badge happily and yeah. say, oh, I'll play this role for you. I'm not from here. Uh, that is actually true for our listeners. I'm not just making that for those up. That I, did, don't I didn't. Know. Yeah, I didn't grow up here. Uh, anyway, so the the component of universality and interconnectedness that is pointed to within our subjectivity is so important to me because it is the the how do we daily acknowledge the importance of our interconnectedness. It is by acknowledging and working within the intersubjective space. Right. And so having any kind of embodied practice of believing in universality, you know, it's a lovely concept. Yeah. But what do we do with that idea of, oh, okay, so we're all connected and we influence you and we can't, you know, we're better together. There, there are all these really nice concepts, but what do we do with that? And to me, intersubjectivity comes along and says, live this way. Yeah. Think about interactions this way. Yes. Process relational things this way. Do conflict resolution this way. Oh, yeah. Right. There, there's just so many really practical applications outside of the therapy room. It's incredibly helpful and, you know, beyond that in the therapy room. But I think the most uh, impactful thing that I've seen is when it's applied to all interactions and relationships, you start having a completely different experience of what it means to be human. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that consistently has been 
feedback that we've gotten from people that have gone through our trainings where we really emphasize inner subjectivity is I thought that I was coming to a training about case conceptualization and turns out I have a whole different understanding of what it means to be a human being yeah (laughs) and I'm parenting differently and I'm having different kinds of communication with my partner and my friendships are deepening and I you know have more self-worth like all of these other things are happening because we're understanding our experience as a human being in a totally different way yeah we're simply recognizing the reality Right. Which is just to me so powerful. So for me, this conversation, I'd like it to start talking about the the first relationship. Yes. Uh, Infant mother. Infant. Primary giver. Yeah, primary caregiver. (laughs) Primary giver. Yeah, primary giver. (laughs) That's true, too. That's true. (laughs) That is true. Yeah. Um, Does that make sense to the the three of us? Absolutely. Okay. So Daniel Stern. I mean, what Mm. a place to start. Let's just start with with Daniel Stern. So in... um, Psychoanalysis, um, Stern is a very, uh, I would say, notable voice as the biggest understatement I could say. Um, but in that, one of the most influential books uh, in intersubjectivity is Stern's book on the first relationship, mm-hmm. um, the, the relationship between infant and mother is what he says. And that is where primary intersubjectivity was introduced into uh, human development literature. And that is the concept of the relationship between the infant and the primary caregiver uh, being so necessary that it is actually what builds the one's concept of self. It is through that relationship, the first relationship, that the foundation for our concept of who we are, our identity, is formed. And that just has worlds of implications on top of it. And that, through intersubjectivity, is understood as the the re- reflection of subjectivity from mother to child. Of I see you in your experience of emotion and experience and and just affect and behavior and all of this, and I'm showing up in this way, which is forming templates for you for the way in which you will you will encounter others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that makes me go back to like the comment you made earlier about like this is pre Freud. Yeah, because uh, Stern is um, psychoanalytic. Yeah, and so uh, imagine you're psychoanalytic and you're doing infant studies. Yes, but you have the doer done to framework of therapy that Freud was working with. Now I want to caveat because I have a lot of compassion for Freud yes. because he's working with serious populations mm-hmm. of psychiatric disorders, coined at that time. Yep, um, and. <laughs> he had to to some degree be in a more like um do or done to dynamic objective role and people projected that onto him and he was in that enactment as a doctor yes but you're stern and you're realizing that it's not the parents wish fulfillment yeah it's their attunement to the emotional experience the seeing the child as a complex subject Man. that has emotionality mm-hmm. and meeting that. And then also, as the parent does, creating a third space in which yeah. they bring their own emotionality. So whether it's they're signaling, uh, this is okay, or mm-hmm. they kind of panic and do something and it signals to the baby, okay, this is serious. I need to like really cry mm-hmm. louder and they're doing all this. So th- this is the shift in psychoanalysis that is now like, turned into relational relational psychoanalysis psychoanalysis. yeah um and and it's coming out of that 
doer done to dynamic and that's jessica benjamin she's a feminist psychoanalyst psychoanalyst yeah um but it's coming out of that doer done to objective relationship and it happened when they studied babies Mm -hmm. which is like so cool Mm -hmm. that these babies had so much to teach us about you know when you're 50 years old there's still a part of you that is infantile Mm -hmm. and is longing for the same thing that when you are six months old you desire and the, the fact that those desires stay with us over the arc of our lifespan, to me, is a demonstration of their, their fundamental importance to mm-hmm. the human organism. Mm-hmm. That it is a primary survival need to be emotionally attuned with other human beings. That skill, that need, that craving, you know, whatever we want to call it, as far as our organism is concerned, is given absolute supremacy. Like it is one of the the first and most important things that we do as an infant is to mm. figure out how to be in deep emotional resonance and communication with other humans. And that's an indication of just how important it has been for the survival of our species to be able to communicate with each other without words mm. and communicate our emotional state even when we don't have the articulation of what it is and what it means. And it can happen quickly and it can happen wordlessly and it can happen um, through huge numbers of people in a very short amount of time. Like the, the power in this kind of communication is ancient and so immense. And, you know, I think that as we've gotten more and more left brain dominant, we've kind of lost track of its yeah, it's supremacy and it's deep importance to what we are as a human species. Mm-hmm. And coming back to that is such an invitation to make sense of so much of what has been shamed in our culture and attempted to be annihilated and yet we've never quite been able to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we thought that we could evolve and overcome the need for each other. Yeah. And it turns out that that is what humans are and there's no way that we're ever going to evolve beyond that. And so kind of welcoming that back and saying, no, this is a good thing about us. Maybe this is the best thing about us. feels so, so wonderful to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mel, what you're talking about, like, brings up so much for me of, like, things we need to be talking about in which, like, as a left hemisphere dominated culture, like, we are minimizing the right hemisphere, Mm -hmm. which is deeply tethered to our embodiment as our self our self as a body yes like and and as an emotional being as an yeah yeah. and and i like take physical space and i'm dependent upon time and the passage of it like there's in context and like if i don't get enough sleep i'm different and Mm. like there's so much there but it's about maintaining that homeostasis so i know how to safely interact with the rest of my world Mm. yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and and i love like the rub that we have as therapists in mm-hmm. a Western culture. So true. I like love and hate it. Right. Because in our quest to help people feel like a subject, which is what they come to therapy for implicitly most of the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, through the right hemisphere yeah. of the brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the confrontation happens when I like both use my body and recognize their body. Yes. Which sounds like I'm sure there's someone who's like, that sounds weird. 
Well, I think there's a lot of people that just have no idea what the heck you mean. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think that's going to be the most common reaction of like, well, what, 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 body. what is, well, yeah. Like, what do you actually mean by that? Like, what are you doing? When yeah. You say my body recognizes your body. Like what is actually happening in real life when you yeah. are talking about a moment like that? And I think that it, well, I don't want to take you off that no, subject, go but ahead. I think that is where the next in the person that we're going to talk about, there's a million people mm-hmm. in this way, but Ellen Shore Another just name that cannot be described I, yeah. in this space. But I've almost got to welcome you into this intersubjective space, listener. I will tell you when uh, Caleb and Bridger say the names of these authors, a very similar thing happens every single time. There is a smile, a shared smile, and you look into each other's eyes and you share a moment of <laughs> just deep uh, connection, and it's almost like. Oh, remember that old friend that we used it to have? Like, I feel like Alan Shore is my old friend. Yes, that, that's exactly like, what it's like. I have a voice for him. Yeah. Like, and I feel like when I read his stuff, it's Like it's he's Alan. just in the room with you hanging yeah. out. Yeah. 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 And, and you create subjects out of the authors of your books. Well, that's exactly how they are in me. <laughs> for sure. Like, of course. Is there for any sure. other way to read? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm having dialogue with them as yeah. I'm talking. Yeah, you talk back reading. to your books. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and Alan Shore is just one that I can't, yeah, talk about enough of mm-hmm. the impact that it's had on me and and on the world of uh, interpersonal neurobiology, psychoanalysis, <laughs> just all, all of it, psychotherapy in general. But in uh, as a human development specialist, um, particularly working with child development, um, Shore took this idea of intersubjectivity, um, particularly primary intersubjectivity, wherein we're looking at the first relationships, um, and then started looking at the neurobiology of intersubjectivity. And that is the first article that we're going to review. Um, It's called The Interpersonal Neurobiology of Intersubjectivity, and it was published 2021. And you can actually, there's public access to this on Frontier Psychology, Frontiers of Mm -hmm. Psychology. Mm -hmm. So you can look this up and get access to it and read along with us uh, as we go. But in this, um, the reason I wanted to interject this at this point is uh, all of Shore's work is focused on the subjective nature of the human organism, particularly found in the primary development of the right hemisphere. Mm -hmm that that is really where our um, species is designed to exist and utilize the functions of the left hemisphere in its interconnectedness with the whole brain. But that primarily we are right hemispheric yeah. in nature, and that is the primary development from which we, we emerge. Yeah. Yeah, like the the meaning-making and also like explicit communication is a small portion of our beingness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the majority lies in our physicality, our awareness of ourselves, mm-hmm. our felt sense of ourselves, and our being felt by other people. Mm. Well, and, and, the, and the the constant implicit communication between our body and our environment, mm-hmm. which includes other bodies. Which, like, for listeners, like, neuroception would be maybe a yes. cue word for them. Of, yeah, neuroception mm-hmm. and PVT language. Yeah, um, this sort of autonomic, you know, subconscious mm-hmm. sonar that's going out yes. detecting stimuli, particularly live stimuli right. in the environment and making meaning of it based right. on our lived experience. Right. And I think, you know, so much of the time as therapists, this usually feels very affirming and inviting to people to kind of come back to really giving a lot of uh, weight and importance to the felt sense that you're having in a, of an experience, even if you do not have a 
logical articulation of why you're feeling what you're feeling. Yeah. That actually trusting in the wisdom of our right hemisphere and our body, even if our left hemisphere hasn't quite caught up to whatever that is yet. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we make decisions that, uh, you know, we haven't thought through. It, we're not implying that you're just being impulsive based on whatever whim your body is feeling at the moment. Because that's a lot of the reaction that we get when we talk about this <laughs> is, but what we need logic, right? We need to be right. rational. We don't want to be impulsive. We've got to be grounded. Yeah. And, and there is something so rude, in my opinion, about suggesting that the body is always impulsive, yes. right? That it makes irrational decisions all the time. I'm sorry, if we would like slow down and listen to our bodies for a second, we wouldn't be dumping caffeine into our system and eating carbs all day long. Like mm. our body communicates and says, excuse me, I've had enough. What you actually need is eight hours of sleep. Like yeah. if you would, like if we would listen, if we would actually slow down and feel what we're feeling, there's a lot of intuitive decision making that I think would actually be more supportive to us. Our bodies are not overly emotional. They're not impulsive. They're not bad, wrong, sinful. Also, I think we got a little Puritan stuff in our background that make some of this hard in our culture that's a different episode yeah <laughs> but i i do think that this is a little bit combative to some of the cultural norms that we have established around left hemisphere supremacy and then intersubjectivity and you know neuroscience comes along and says whoopsie actually it is meant to be in service to yeah not that it is not as good as it's not about which is better or worse we're all one organism we're promoting a whole brain intersubjective experience of what it means to be human yeah and that way of conceptualizing this, I think, is really important. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that, you know, from this article, the reason that we chose this one is just, one, it gives such a robust um, inquiry into the theory of intersubjectivity as it relates to human biology and mm -hmm. its development over time, particularly in relationship, but also that it, for us, establishes a kind of foundational framework uh, from which we view the human organism yes, as a whole everything. and how we view each other and how we uh, participate in intersubjectivity with one another. Yeah. Um, but all of it has to do with the way that we have been treated and the way that we treat others mm -hmm. in and throughout our life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I don't know what other topics you guys want to cover tonight, mm. but I feel like we would be remiss if we did not talk about what does this actually look like? Like when we say working within the intersubjective space, yeah. what, what do we mean? Yeah. Right. Conceptually, we've kind of laid the foundation of here's what it is. I'm, I'm wanting us to talk about, and what do we do with it? <laughs> mm. Like, how do we pay attention to it? How do we interact with it? How do we acknowledge it on a daily basis in our relationships and all kinds <sighs> of different interactions in and out of therapy? That, that is a, a grounding conversation that, at least for me, when I was learning about this, took it from theoretical and far away and almost kind of like, Meh, I don't really know what to do with that, to, oh, oh, no, this is everything. Yeah. This is so practical. Yeah. Would you yeah. be open to sharing what kind of made that switch for you? Do you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think, well, I, I distinctly remember the moment of like the light bulb moment of, oh, that's what it is, is when we drew that quadrant out of uh -huh. Ken Wilber's book. Uh-huh. Um, Integrated psychology. Integrated psychology. Yeah. Um, no, integral psychology. Integral. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Integral. I should know that. <laughs> integral psychology. Um, anyway, he he talks about intersubjectivity, and one of the ways that he describes it is in quadrant form. Yep. Um, and that's something that we've adopted in one of our tra trainings where we're looking at the different be difference between um, I and it. Yep. So you've got it on the top mm -hmm. left, its 
on yes. the bottom left, I on the top right, we, we on the bottom right. Yeah, and I think the for me, because you know, I, I do process very right hemisphere and body based, um, the the sensory felt sense feeling that's redundant intentionally. <laughs> the felt sense feeling of the difference between its and we is everything. Mm-hmm. And just acknowledging all of the moments of life where I wished for a sense of we and instead encountered it and its. And, you know, likewise, I was wishing for the sense of acknowledgement of the I, the human that I am, and instead was shoved into an it, this role that I played. That felt so resonant with my lived experience. Mm. And it felt like an invitation to start to reflect on, number one, what of those experiences meant to me throughout the course of my life and, you know, the story that shaped the, the me that I am. But then also... How is that showing up now? And that, to me, is a great uh, explanation of what does it mean to work with the intersubjective space in the present moment is a, a gentle but constant invitation to monitoring whether or not I am moving this encounter towards it and its yeah, or I and me or we. Uh-huh. And really feeling the difference between how much humanity is really being welcomed versus how much am I either shoving someone into a role or allowing myself to be shoved into a role. Yeah. The the felt sense of the difference of those kinds of human interactions to me made it come very alive and gave it a lot of importance. It gave language to an experience yeah. that just felt constant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, and this is, I mean, very much very similar, but to me, just in kind of the language that I understand it in, um, it is looking at the objective identities that yeah. we have formed over time or that have been formed for us and that we kind of just by nature inhabit and what subjectivity is hidden underneath in mm-hmm. fear and shame. Mm-hmm. That to me, especially as a psychotherapist, that is what I'm primarily concerned with of, you know, what is this objective role or this objective identity that the that the patient or the client is presenting to me? And that is really what the struggle is, is I'm I'm deeply dissatisfied with my objectivity. That's not the story that's said. It's, you know, I'm I'm unhappy in my relationships. I'm unhappy at work. I don't like who I am, whatever it is. But to me, it's, a, it's, it's the fundamental problem is really with the struggle between objectivity and subjectivity yeah. within an embodied life. Well, and even just really common questions in therapy, like, I really want more intimacy and connection in my marriage, and I just can't feel it. Yeah. Oh. Well, one of the, the most, yeah. That's everything. One of the questions that, I, like, just pops into my head is, well, what does, what's a good husband? What's a good wife? What's a good friend? Yeah. Oh, what does it even mean to be a good person? Exactly. (laughs) All these objects that we create in our minds, there's no self in that. It's it's all about creating this set of expectations, what, you know, synthesizing Mm -hmm. cultural uh, commentary with our own lived experience into this way of saying, well, I'm not, I'm clearly failing because I'm not up to this or they're failing because they're not up to this. I'm not getting along with them because they're not this. Yeah. Yeah. So you asked, uh, you know, what were the moments that kind of made this spark and come alive? And I actually just remembered what it was. Oh, nice. (laughs) I mean, all of that other stuff is true as well. And, you know, in the conceptual conversations that the three of us had over the course of several weeks, 
but there was a moment in my own self-reflection when I was kind of pondering this where it became incredibly important mm. and it was this my my own mother was an amazing mother as the role of mother the object the object of mother but I distinctly remember as a little kid a felt sense of why does it feel like when she looks at me, she's not seeing me? Oof. Like it was, cl- it was so clear in my body. And I actually remember lots of different moments of trying to figure out how to get her to really see me. Yeah. And, you know, never succeeding. Right. But she was such a good mother. <laughs> and it was this baffling experience of like, what is happening here? Like yeah. she's doing all the right things. She came to all this stuff. She, you know, made all the cupcakes, like literally did all of it. Yeah. Would, would talk to me for hours. But when I, when I think about what those conversations were like, it was her listening to me, but never including her own humanity in any of it. She was never subject. She was never, ever subject. And I longed for subject mother to, to know my mother, to not have a mother, but to know my mother. Yeah. And part of what helped me connect this was I heard one of my aunts tell a story about my mother when she was young. And it's like my whole body was just eager for any information I could get because she would never give me any of that. Wow. Like I never, you know, never heard stories about what was it like to date my dad? I still have no stories about that. I have no idea what it was like for them. Like that's not talked about, right? So all of this subjective information about who is this human, I was desperate for it and had no way of getting it, yeah. but then no way of articulating, what the heck is it that I'm wanting? She's right here. Right. I get so much attention. I get so much of the, so many of the things that any little kid would long for. What is it that I'm missing? And it's the humanness, mm. the subjectness of mother. And then becoming a mother and feeling that tension of how much of my own humanness is okay to offer my daughter at any given point. See, this to me, we don't have time to go into this tonight, but to me, this is where I hope we go because I see this, this, what you just described, Mm is just so clear in my head as this is a problem with subjectivity. Yeah. This, you're you're talking about a lived experience of yourself where your subjectivity was flailing. Yeah. And trying Please be to human with find me. another subject anywhere, yeah, yeah. and you were just seeing objects. Yes, and pure that objects. that to me is what happens when, and you know, later in life you'd call this an attachment like yes. style or an yeah. attachment an insecure attachment style or something like that. That's what Bowlby was recognizing. Mm-hmm. But the problem actually occurred in primary inner subjectivity. Yes, mm-hmm. that's where it yeah. began. Where yeah. where is mother? Who yes. is mother? Who is mother? Yes. And what do I do when I find mother? Yeah. Because objects, I fear, you know, an object can disappear from me, and we yes. call it object permanence, which I freaking love I that. Really it's just funny. like a little like wink from. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Object <laughs> permanence. Um, you know, uh-huh. is this going to be there even when I can't see it? Mm-hmm subjects though it's a completely different experience Mm -hmm. you know i never similar to you mel uh but very different in the same (laughs) but uh you know my mother um i never knew her as marla right i i still don't right i know her as that's my mom Mm -hmm. and this is a this is an object that leaves right yeah and that's that the way that's the way it is my mother is the object that serves yeah exactly Mm-hmm. And so for me, it is one that 
I, I understand it so just foundationally. And that's why I'm so glad that we're getting ready to launch into this series because every issue that you see in this world, even every, just every piece of human experience mm-hmm. is an issue with intersubjectivity. Yeah. Mm. That's where it is. Yeah. 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 I love, I love both of your examples. What was kind of going through my mind is actually kind of what we talked about in the moat kind of intro mm-hmm. to this. Um, Oh yeah, we did a mini moat. We did intro. a mini moat. If intro. you guys are a Patreon member, if not, you should go sign up. To <laughs> yeah, we'll tell you about Patreon later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it was kind of like our sort of like what our do we encounter? Yeah, what, mm-hmm. how, how do we encounter intersubjectivity? But one of the things I was thinking, Mel, when you were talking specifically about your experience of interobjectivity, yeah, is very similar to what Jessica Benjamin talks about. Mm-hmm. Like, if you are caught in what she calls complementarity, mm-hmm. you are not in an intersubjective space. So yeah. there's a doer done to dynamic. Yes. Yes. So you were doing and your mom was being done to, and that was a yes. role and there's a power dynamic there. Yes. But, and, and I like literally like was picturing like the stone statue mm-hmm. and yes. you speaking to it. Yes. There's a difference between a witnessing object right. and a witnessing subject. subject. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think it, even in like clinical education, like there isn't, implicit sort of teaching mm-hmm. of interobjectivity as a therapist yeah. like be be the therapist in the role and then when when they're like talking when your clients are talking to you have this sort of like open posture yeah and it's very relaxed. rehearsed mm-hmm. and like you are kind of cookie cutter mm-hmm. formed into like this is the object of a therapist yeah and i just like think of like so many clients where like if I was like a witnessing object, oh. like how brutally like longing I would leave oh, them. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. and that to me is like the, the going up to that stone statue and expecting tender softness and just like, hey, yep. you're supposed to. Why are you not responding to me? Yeah. Why are you not? I need Do you. Do you care? Yes. Yeah. Are you in there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But here's where intersubjectivity gets really complex because, you know, um, there's a psychoanalytic philosopher um zizek yes who talks in the in the realm of um <laughs> r- uh, religion where he says like you know um the scariest thing would be if a statue just started moving mm. because you you have object the the statue is an object and it would be absolutely terrifying if it started moving to become and it, subject yeah, and well, across time. that's like the time, first time that your parent, like when you're used to them being object, and the first time you like discover something about your parents, like what the, I don't, yes. you're not human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or in therapy, uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about this, but intra-objectivity, yes. where you have internalized a self-view self of objectivity. So yeah. I have to play, and you insulate yourself, not as a subject, but as a an object to many this people is what it means to, be to be a good therapist used yeah. or done to or do to well, i think we're trained to do that like well yeah inter- that's what that's yeah. what caleb was saying yeah. interobjective training yeah. Yeah. is pretty standard it, like you know one of the things that we talk about in the sip training we have a slide that says you know as a therapist do you want to be objective or subjective and obviously it's a trick question because the point is is we're trained as if being objective is like the best thing ever. It yeah. would be a thing that we would pride ourselves Keep your on. Counter-transference out, out of, of this room. Yeah. But yeah, the, and this is harkening back to Crittenden of like keeping oh, uh, yes. those poor and I empathize with you because I'm on dismissive attachment strategies <laughs> in an right. augmented strategy because like in that way I'm colluding with the client. 
Like that's right. They probably have introjected, which means internalized, self-objectifying views of their own absolutely self. Yeah. And in like playing that objective role, we're we're staying in this sort of colluding like wink wink safety right. where we're not going to touch that thing, but we're going to talk about how you can be a better object outside of that's this room. That's right. And what's crazy is you you know you're talking about the baby that's longing for to be subjectified and also in therapy when and this is like the provocative work that we do yeah is when i become embodied to my client subject for the first time and i start talking about how i'm experiencing them just in my body and i'm i jump out of content and i'm dropping straight into a process all the process and and we're here now we're engaged in this embodied sort of like Mm -hmm. opening up to this present moment as it is that is terrifying to the self-objectified states yeah you'll get all kinds of somatic reactions of just Mm -hmm. like almost like Mm -hmm. squirming shuffling Mm -hmm. shutdown all the range of neurophysiological feedback is immense well and i think what's happening in that space is to to be objectified leaves the activation primarily in the left hemisphere it feels it feels safe in that space um and left hemisphere dominance trains us to objectify. That's right. And, you know, tell... It must be objectified. Yeah, tell, tell stories with our personality, with our selfhood. We become a story for other people to consume. And it's, you know, incredibly safe-ish feeling. Right. And uh, really mm. cold and dry and far away and lonely and all but those in things. That, it's so controllable. Yeah, and that and that's what I mean. Like, there's tremendous safety and productive. in it. So, so when we come along with our subjectivity and begin to, you know, hint to this other person's nervous system, hey, I see you. Complexity. Yeah, like you're you're a full human in there, and I'm okay with all of it. And I'm inviting. I you. don't need you to play a role, and also I'm not going to play a role for you. I'm mm-hmm. a full human over here too. What happens in that moment is that there's a stimulation of the right hemisphere and it's you know connections deep in the body and all of that starts to get activated and the affect states that have been dissociated away yes. by our left hemisphere dominant strategies start to wake up and now you know the client is feeling things in their stomach and their chest they're breathing and they're going dear god what's happening yeah. to me like it feels anxiety provoking and it starts to feel unsafe but at the same time, while there's a feeling of anxiety, there's a feeling of excitement and anticipation and hope because it feels so different. And there's this little tingly feeling of, wait a second, this feels like the thing that I've always been longing for, right. but I'm also terrified and of see, it. That right there is why we say over and over again, all we can do is invite yeah. because that person that just for that split second saw and felt the invitation come across, yeah. they have very good reasons absolutely why they would not Perfect reasons accept that invitation because that is where annihilation is the most imminent yeah if i'm in my subjectivity i can be destroyed right. but if i put object of identity after object of identity in front of you yeah. you can crush those all day long because i'll just create a new one yeah. but the second that i expose my subjectivity to you and you reject me i have no construct for what could happen mm-hmm. death Mm-hmm. Or the constructs that I do have are so painful that they feel intolerable. Intolerable. Yeah. 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 Which is like, all of this is harkening back to like, I don't know if listeners paid that close attention, but we are seeing so much language that we have said in pretty much mm-hmm. every episode. Like, yes. And, and we've been building. And hopefully <laughs> like, yeah, you'll realize that even as we talk so much of our whole like understanding of what it means to help a person, any person. Um, 
is grounded in this idea that yeah. it has to be two subjects. It has to be intersubjective. Yeah. Human um, to human. Full human to full human. And and one clarifying point, just because it's a question that a lot of people have when we're teaching this, what we're not saying as the therapist is that it, we're not suggesting that to work in the intersubjective space is about self-disclosure. Mm. It's <laughs> not about telling stories about who I am and my history and where I come from. It's about present moment awareness of my human experience of this other human and being able to speak to it directly. Yeah. It's about integration of yes. affective emergence. Yes. Is, are okay, you but, say, able... but say what those words mean because well, yeah. people aren't going to know what that means. To me, that's what it means to be intersubjective is to my body is reacting yeah. and I can choose to not tell you about that. Yeah. I can choose to objectify myself and just yeah. hide it all I'm away. I'm just going to sit here with my feelings. Or just like you're, you're describing Caleb of I'm man, what you're saying is affecting my body. Mm-hmm. Like the way that I feel in response to your beingness. Yeah. I want to share that with you. And then I'd love for you to share with me what it's like for you to experience me. Yeah. That right there is a re um, it, it, it's a re-entry into the primary intersubjective yes. space in which our mind emerged. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I had a client today who showed up 30 minutes late and I, in my own, like I am sitting there waiting 30 minutes and that experience, I was like, oh my God, I feel stressed. Mm. And then I was like, I wonder if they feel stressed. I was like, I bet some people don't feel stressed about that. I know people who are just <laughs> habitually late. It doesn't stress <laughs> it them out. It is what it is. Yeah. So in the novel experience of that moment for in my own body, it created a, an emergent curiosity, which then the start of the session was not, okay, great. We've got some time. Let's crank it out. Let's get to work. Like mm. we got to do this faster. Jump in. It was a, hey, how do you, how does your body feel when you're late to something? He goes, oh my god, I'm I'm really stressed. I'm stressed out. And and I was like, me too. Me too. Like mm-hmm. I felt it waiting. I was like, if I was him right now, I would be very stressed. Man. And so I just said, let's just take a moment. Yes. Like, and I want you to know that as me. I'm in no way upset with you. Right. I'm not bringing this up yeah. to subtly shame you. No. And I was like, if we need to extend the session, you know, luckily I've got time for that. And he had something else he needed to go to. I was like, well, that's okay. Mm. We're not going to rush this process. We don't need to. That's beautiful. Like, let's just kind of take a moment to just breathe. Yeah. If you have to just like sit in silence for a little bit. Right. That's and that okay. is like, uh, to me, I don't think I would have gotten anywhere because his, and even if I would have gotten somewhere in the session, his the stress state that he inhabited would have inhibited the yes. type of memory that he was going to take away yes. from that and moment and really hindered Even the integration the yes. language of getting somewhere mm-hmm. that is oh. such objective mm-hmm. language yes. yeah. so then because the goal is not to get anywhere right. but to make sense together yeah mm-hmm. yeah we have an alan watts video that we're showing in um trainings and that's stuff. right and Alan Watts talks about the difference, you know, between life as a journey and life as a dance. dance. And he oh. uses this like really quirky metaphor. He's like, you know, if, if and he's life, got a beautifully like yeah. English accent. Yeah. He's, and he's jovial and he's like, well, if life was about getting to the end and that's the point of everything, then you'd go to a concert and hear someone play. He says like one crushing chord and right. he laughs and he'd say, that's it. And that's then it'd be the, done. That's the end. And it'd be the people who write the fastest songs who are the best. Yeah. And he's like, that's not it. 
No, you, it we must, want yeah. the waves and the yeah. flow and the undulation. Yeah. Oh, that's a Scrabble word. Um, <laughs> well, but I think that's, that's an Alan Watts word. Yes, oh, <laughs> okay. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's the reconceptualizing yeah. interobjectivity would be like, I'm going to nail a nail into the wall with mm-hmm. a hammer yeah. because that's an object. There's mm-hmm. an end goal with a dance. I am going to let the dance bring about what it needs to bring. Mm-hmm. If I need to learn how to do something differently, I, I need to follow. Mm-hmm. Oh, lead we're getting close to the wall. Well, I'm going to lead mm-hmm. us away from it because they can't see the and wall. It is so and much about the feeling that is evoked in our body as we dance. We dance because it feels good. Yeah, you don't. And it you feels don't think. interesting. That's like the yes. if you've ever been to a dance class, get out of your head. Yeah, yeah. Yes. like and I just want to point the attention to the, of the listener to if you're f- hearing this and saying like, ugh, like, what is the utility of this conversation? Like, why mm-hmm. is this important? Mm-hmm. Like, you're telling me to get out of my head, and uh, you know, I, I have to. I have three kids. Mm-hmm. I've got to do all of this stuff. I've got to earn enough money to support my family, and I just want to be a good therapist, or I just want to be a good whatever. This to me, I want to subjectify you <laughs> in this of mm. saying the weight of that object of responsibility is immense. Mm-hmm. And let us not sacrifice our subjectivity for what we, ex- what, what we anticipate others expect and demand from our objectivity. And I have never once encountered a, a true moment where choosing subjectivity damaged any kind of goal that felt that important to it me. made it actually better, better. more meaningful yes. easier to accomplish and hands down clients experience it that way as well so i don't know where we are in time but i kind of want to like wrap up by telling a story of it's excellent the the way that clients experience inner subjectivity mm-hmm. right so this is a client that is also a therapist which i think is relevant yes because they have all of the objective Objects, training man. so at the beginning of this session, she actually made a comment that went exactly like this, and this happened today, so it's very fresh in my mind. Well, one of my previous therapists, and she was describing this exercise that they did together, and she said, and I never knew what his opinion was about any of it, but I guess that's what it means to be a good therapist. <laughs> and I immediately thought, man, I wonder what you think about me, because you know all my opinions about everything. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm pretty free with my opinions about all kinds of stuff. Mm. But then later in the session, she said, I, I really feel like I need to talk about something, but I'm super embarrassed to bring it up. And of course, this is the last five minutes of a session, which effectively means that we ran late because that's that's what happens. And she reflected to me that uh, the this client recently moved away to a different city, which means we had we've just gone virtual and we've dropped down from seeing each other every week in person to every other week virtually. A big change for this mm, client. Yeah. Big change for me. Um, Because this person, you know, was a routine part of my week and now suddenly um, and I was missing her this week, Mm. which I don't know how that sounds to some people to acknowledge that, yeah, we miss our clients when we're used to having regular updates and then we don't. So the oh, last you're human, Come I, on. I know, which is kind of what we're talking about and kind of where the story is going. <laughs> and so uh, the last day that I would have normally seen her, but it was the off week in this new schedule. I was thinking about her, and I sent her a text. And it was a very simple text. just said, hey, miss getting an update from you. Hope you're doing well. Looking forward to seeing you next week. It was a very simple text. Didn't hear from her for hours, which I thought was really odd. 
And so, and eventually she texted back and, you know, she said, hey, that means a lot to me that you texted that. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Didn't think anything of it. She's like, so you sent me that text last week. I'm like, yeah. She's like, when I read that the first time, my immediate thought was that you were trying to passive aggressively remind me that I needed to pay my bill that was overdue. Object. Object. And then she said, but then I thought, that's not you. Because I know how you think. <laughs> and you don't think like wow. that. Yeah. That's how I think. And she said, it took me a couple of hours to talk myself through it. But I realized you had texted me because you were thinking about me. And her exact words. And if you were thinking about me when you didn't have to, maybe that means that you care about me. And I, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to cry. And, you know, it's your session, yeah. not mine. But, of course, now I'm crying. You yeah. Know? yeah. And that's fine, sure. too, because that's welcome in that space. Um, Welcoming after the yes. emergence. That's yes. Sure. And her reflection on this was, do you remember that movie or that TV show, Once Upon a Time, where the Wicked Witch has a heart that's all dark? But by the end of the season, they discover that there's just a little bit of life left in it. And she can start to feel it. She said, when I realized that maybe you actually cared about me, I felt it. And I've never felt it before. Mm. And it was from a flippant text on a random Wednesday afternoon. Mm. And it made her realize that I was a human that cared about her mm. as a human. Wow. And those moments are what intersubjectivity is all about. Yeah. Because I said yes to a true affect state in my body that said, I wonder how she is. Yeah. And I did not edit it out under the role of professional therapist. The but object, I, yes, yeah. the object of therapist. But I offered it as an authentic expression from one human to another. It cost me literally nothing but three seconds and it didn't feel like a cost at all. Yeah. Because I was genuinely curious. Yeah. And the amount of shift that that created in her body, her reflection on it was that she felt it and she felt something in her body that she had never felt before. So the rest of the session was about her integrating what that felt sense in her body means. Yeah. And it was 100% about, oh, that's what it feels like when a human cares about you and you know it. Yeah. Because she never felt it before. If that's not like therapy. That's if, beautiful. If that's not therapy, I don't know what and it is. It was a yeah. flipping text. That's amazing. Two sentences. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot of relationship and a whole lot of yeah. care and precedent to that. Yeah. But it was in the allowance and the permission of my humanity welcoming her humanity that all of that emerged. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and my my mind goes back to Vander Hart and Steele. Oh. Mm -hmm. When we did that dependency article. And yes. That's, very much that so. is a, an example of secure dependency. Yeah. In which you're two subjects relating to one another. Mm -hmm. And there's not this like, you're going to give like therapy via text. if No. And that, but, that's not what it was. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a beautiful like emergent experience of, hey, I'm a human and mm -hmm. I am witnessing you as a human. Yeah. Yeah. And that... Like the process you're explaining her going through mm -hmm. to me is like, that's health. Yes. To be able to engage in a yes. moment of like, 
okay, that was activating. I recognized it. And there's my left brain strategy to try to deflect that experience and explain why it can't actually be true care. I sat with it. Yes. I connected back to my body. Yes. I went and I referenced my subjective experience of Melissa. Reflected. Yes. Yeah, reflected my body across time in reference mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. And then came up with this beautiful conclusion. Like, that is the brain's, like, beauty on full display. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Like, safety and connection. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just, like, the neurosequential processing order of that is perfect. Yeah. Something activates in our environment. Collapse. We come into left hemisphere. It tries to tell us a story. Check past experience. Yeah, check past experience. Reference. Bring up the strategy. Oh, but wait. Look again. Maybe I'm safe. Maybe mm. there's no threat here. And if there's no threat, maybe I don't need the strategy. What happens if I set the strategy aside? My right brain can start to communicate, and I can actually get articulation out of the felt sense rather than out of the left hemisphere story and strategy. And then, boom, it moves down into my body, and I get a true affective shift in my entire nervous system. Mm -hmm. And now I have a bottom-up experience of what it means to be loved by another human being. Yeah. And that is healing. Yeah. What if that was what happened in the primary intersubjectivity of infancy? I hope it is. I hope it is. But Mm -hmm. for that person, Mm -hmm. like what you're experiencing and the reason that person is in therapy is because of a lack of intersubjective encounter in that way. Yes. And that humanity was never welcomed. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm so excited for this series. Yeah, me too. The article. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. Interpersonal neurobiology of intersubjectivity. Yeah. Yeah. Alan Shore, 2021. And the the whole psychology. The whole idea of intersubjectivity, I think, is super awesome. Clearly, it's kind of one of our faves. It's at the base of every piece of content we create. Yeah. 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 It's kind of our thing. Yeah. All right, guys. Ready to wrap up? Yeah. Caleb, you want to try it out? Hey. Oh, yeah. You're going to do a thing. Yeah. Hey, if, if you're listening to this and you like our voices and you want to stay connected to us, you also want to be connected to a larger community of like-minded people who are engaging in conversations like this online, I would suggest that you go jump on Patreon. Absolutely. Uh, which, Bridger, you're going to have to help me out. Patreon.com slash Beyond Healing Center. Slash Beyond Healing mm-hmm. Center. Um, we've got a super awesome secret podcast. That's right. Yep, we've that's got true. some videos and some audio. Resources. Yeah, recordings of recordings. live sessions. Yes, amazing yeah. resources. From this perspective. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. EMDR sessions, non-EMDR sessions. SIP, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got additional kind of resources beyond yep. that. Mm-hmm. And so just really encourage you to hop on over there, uh, support us, um, as well as get some awesome resources. Yeah. Um, there's different donation levels. Absolutely. And, and that is another way for us all to stay connected because we have so much, um, that just comes out all the time and Mm -hmm. more growth. Um, like when the fall hits, it's going to be crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, at certain levels of membership, you also get invited to a monthly consultation call with one of us, which is super fun. That's right. They're they're mostly EMDR focused, but as we get more people, they don't have to be, they don't have to be. So if there's a topic that you're interested in, let us know. We can talk about us. I mean, we always talk about it. It's the wild west basically. It really is. Yeah. Basically it's whatever you want. We will happily find a way to provide if we can. (laughs) And also shout out. I mean, this is on Caleb, the eve of your, Oh yeah. Full-time great transition. transition. Yes. 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 Yeah. Uh, so Caleb is coming excited. on full-time mm-hmm. to Beyond Healing Center, which is the client-facing side of our organization, and will also be 
uh, heavily contributing in Beyond Healing Institute, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is the training apparatus, yeah. content yeah. generator. Yeah, yeah, we've we've been cranking out SIP together at for like, over a year. Yeah, at the late You're night. You're finally time. gonna get paid for it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> at the late night time in weeknights when we're all like uh-huh. half asleep and right. also like eating pizza and right. coffee overly right. caffeinated yeah. the thing yeah. you said yeah, yeah, that we, yeah. Yeah. if we listen to our body we wouldn't have to do well but our body was also really enjoying the initial sure space of oh just yeah like creating this thing together so yeah. we're honoring that yeah there was a us. sacred moment of that but i'm excited <laughs> that that will happen more frequently and yeah. yeah and i'll get to engage with more listeners uh, i yeah. love like the community and and i'm becoming more and more aware of how subjectified people feel as we are discussing in this culture these. yeah, yeah. Yes. it's and, beautiful and we need that and i'm excited to interact with more yeah. people so yeah. i'm so, so excited beyond healing center wait patreon.com slash beyond healing center correct and yeah. if you need anything at all including if you're curious about retreats therapy at beyond healing center.com will get you connected with one of us you will meet brooklyn yeah. uh, virtually who brooklyn is wonderful she's, she's wonderful. Our, one of our coordinator admin assistants that's right and retreat coordinators and she makes sure that we do all the things that we promise we're going to do yeah i've <laughs> never been subjective by an administrative like person like that's oh that's Bro- a disconfirming experience Brooklyn oh will do it. yeah Brooklyn yeah will our do admin it. team is like super subjective yep. and it's fascinating yeah <laughs> it even took me some time <laughs> so, like i know what's happening and like, this is still disorienting wait, i need to do paperwork and you care about me excuse me <laughs> okay thanks you're yeah. treating me like a full human while having to yeah, having to do I tax documents okay yeah <laughs> thank you all right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this wonderful and long episode. What an introduction. Yes, it is. And we'll be Buckle back up. with more about intersubjectivity very soon. Good night. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us on our website at beyondhealingcenter.com slash media. Also, subscribe to our Patreon to support us at patreon.com slash beyondhealingcenter. Find all episodes on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks for listening.